Support for this podcast comes from Columbia University Press, publisher of Inventing Tomorrow, H.G. Wells and the 20th Century. Sarah Cole demonstrates how Wells defined the past century, shaped our understanding of the future, and showed how literature could change the world. Visit cup.columbia.edu and use the code CUP30 for 30% off the cover price. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Taking stock of Brexit, you can see the benefits of a written constitution. There's been complete inertia in British politics ever since the 2016 referendum results, as Parliament figures out how to leave the European Union. And then there are the myriad problems, from passports to borders, that will have to be dealt with if they're successful. Yet the United States has a written constitution, one that is treated by some as an almost holy text. And in many regards, we're in no better shape than the UK. Over the past two weeks, it's been reported that Donald Trump asked the president of Ukraine to help dig up dirt on Joe and Hunter Biden, and that he pressured the prime minister of Australia to help the US attorney general uncover the origins of the Mueller probe. Congress has begun impeachment proceedings, and perhaps unsurprisingly, the White House has refused to participate in them. In the October issue, a panel of legal scholars and lawmakers considered whether aspects of the Constitution are still useful or if, in political conditions none of the framers could have foreseen, it should be entirely rewritten. The conversation was much longer than what could be included in print, so this episode includes a selection of the forum that dealt directly with impeachment. Welcome, everybody. We're delighted to have you here for this Harper's Magazine Forum on the Constitution. Um, I'm Rosa Brooks. I'm a law professor at Georgetown and uh, also on the Harper's uh, Foundation Advisory Board. So it's a real pleasure to have you all here. I think before we get started, we'll just go around the room and perhaps you could each say a few words to introduce yourself uh, and tell our listeners about your background. So I'm Lawrence Lessig, and I'm a law professor at Harvard Law School, and I um, teach and write in the area of constitutional and comparative constitutional law. I am Marianne Franks. I'm a law professor at the University of Miami School of Law and the president and legislative and tech policy director at the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. I have a forthcoming book called The Cult of the Constitution, and my teaching and research interests are First and Second Amendment, Privacy, and Criminal Law. So uh, I'm David Law. I'm the Charles Nagel Chair of Constitutional Law and Political Science at Washington University in St. Louis and the Sir Y.K. Pao Chair in Public Law at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, I write about public law mainly from a comparative international and empirical perspective, and uh, I've got a forthcoming uh, Oxford Handbook of Constitutional Law in Asia in the works. I'm Donna Edwards, a former member of Congress from Maryland. I served five terms in the House of Representatives. My name's Mike Seidman. I uh, teach law at Georgetown University Law Center, and my main areas of interest are constitutional law and criminal justice. I wonder, we've talked a lot about amending the Constitution and and this problem about uh, democracy, and those are important questions, but there's another problem here that I think also requires some discussion, and, and that is the kind of constitutional culture we have and the effect that that culture has on our um, the way we think about political issues. So for me, 
Part of the problem with that culture is that so many questions are turned over to lawyers and to legalistic kinds of arguments. A, a very good example is um, the question about impeachment. And so you have these long discussions, um, both in scholarly literature and in the popular literature, people like Larry Tribe and Alan Dershowitz arguing about what the framers intended uh, the impeachment clause to mean and the, the exchange between uh, James Madison and, and uh, whoever it was on the floor of the uh, Constitutional Convention. Do there have to be formal crimes and so on? This is not the way these questions should be thought about. They should be thought about not in terms of the law, but in terms of statesmanship. And I, I think actually one problem about our constitutional culture is that it tends to eliminate the space between raw politics on the one hand and legalistic um, constitutionalism on the other, um, when what's needed is people operating in a middle space where they are being statesmen and thinking about the long run, but not thinking about it in legalistic terms. Yeah, I'd, I'd love us to talk a little bit more about some of those issues. And, and obviously, in the context of the Trump presidency, there is a renewed interest among ordinary Americans and journalists in the Constitution. And, and I'm constantly being asked by non-lawyer friends, as I'm sure you all are as well, questions like, well, are we in a constitutional crisis? Or is it unconstitutional for Donald Trump to declare a national emergency to get funding to build the wall? Or is it unconstitutional to do this or that? And and I'm always a little torn about how to answer that question, because part of my, my sort of lawyer brain says things like, well, you know, what do you mean by constitutional crisis? Or, well, you know, it depends on your blah, blah, blah. Uh, and another part of me wants to say, those are irrelevant, stupid questions. I, I don't really care whether it's constitutional or not. Um, there is a whole other set of issues here. It may be that the, you know, you, you could make a non-frivolous argument that it's perfectly constitutional for Donald Trump to declare a national emergency and build the wall. But what would that tell us? Why would that, why would that advance anything? Why would that why would that change anything for anyone? Why should that change anything for anyone? Uh, if we think it's basically evil and a bad idea, then it's evil and a bad idea with, without, with, without regard to whether or not it is constitutional. And this, in some ways, gets us back to where we started, the question of, is the Constitution tainted from the get-go by the, by the exclusions, lies, et cetera, that lay at the very foundation of it? Uh, and the question of, well, either way, why should we care now, today, what any bunch of people, even had they been more representative, et cetera, thought almost 250 years ago, why would that have any relevance to a set of policy questions and moral questions and normative questions that the United States is, is facing now? And, and I guess, you know, the, I'd love to hear you all talk about that cluster of issues I think it's extraordinarily tempting in the context of Donald Trump to use constitutional arguments precisely because we live in a constitutional culture in which even if Americans don't know the details, referring to something as constitutional or not has enormous power and salience. And that's sort of the that's the terrain on which we are fighting. Uh, and 
you know, again, it is what it is. We may not like it, but it's what we've got. So let's use it. Let's let's use the heck out of it. You know, let's let's do whatever we can to make the argument that everything Donald Trump is doing is is unconstitutional if we don't like him or if we happen to like him, that everything he's doing is constitutional. Um, But but it seems to me that there are also some real costs to doing that insofar as that further legitimizes a a set of assumptions that we all at least on some level think are not legitimate that that at best there's a sort of pragmatic argument for sticking with it because it's it's what we happen to have and it's too complicated to change everything as opposed to tweaking the pieces we really really don't like um and worst case we think it's 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 both fundamentally tainted from the get-go and a distraction from the more important normative conversations we we ought to be having. So I think this is a question that keeps coming back, as you say, especially now, because there was a moment, uh, you know, when when Trump was announcing these immigration policies and, and you had this this wonderful sort of visual moment of all these lawyers descending upon airports and actually saving us, right? Or it looked as though there was this remarkable sort of moment for lawyers in this country. And I've never felt so proud, right, to be part of that profession. And and it is interesting to think, and this is something that I, I, I try to think through quite a bit, that we've gotten ourselves in this position because we have engaged in the politics of constitutionalization, that everything has become constitutionalized. And that's why we're in this mess. And now the question is, now that we're here, what do we do? Because we can't, we don't have the luxury of starting over. And it is difficult to know what to say about that, right? Because there's the, that, that constant tension between can you try to dismantle a bad practice from the inside or do you have to blow the whole thing up and start over, right? Do we need to go William Lord Garrison on the whole Constitution and just start over? But what I think of as, as the position, at least that I've, I've taken as a preliminary step, is to think, well, is there anything in the Constitution that is meaningful here in a, in a larger sense. And for me, and it may sound like like an over, oversimplification, it no doubt is, but I do think that the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause is where a lot of this work has to get done. So as a moral matter, as a legal matter, as a constitutional matter, I think the only principle that's actually universally defensible is the principle of reciprocity. The only thing that keeps us from immorality, the only thing that keeps us from illegality is the concept of that whatever it is that we choose, constitutionally or otherwise, we have to choose for everyone. We don't get to say, I get a First Amendment right, but you do not. We don't get to say, I get Second Amendment rights, but Philando Castile does not, right? We can't do that, right? If our if our constitutional culture, right, because I don't know how this would play out necessarily on a doctrinal level, but as a matter of constitutional culture, we constantly ask the question, not are my First Amendment rights being violated, but are First Amendment rights being protected for everyone, right? If we say that you have the right to, for instance, uh, defame or harass somebody online, and that forces them to stop talking, and they can no longer express themselves for fear of that harassment, those death threats, or being hounded out of their home, why don't we have a conversation about the First Amendment rights on both sides, as opposed to assuming that there's any uh, sense in which we can say First Amendment rights on one side? Same argument for the Second Amendment, same argument for basically all the, the rights that we consider to be important. So to think about this longstanding principle of reciprocity as we're all tied together. So it's the, the, the idea that if we're going to say we need a robust Second Amendment right, just to take a, a non-controversial example, um, what is that going to mean? Does it mean that we want everybody walking through the streets with, with AK-47s strapped to their backs? Because I think we have to do that thought experiment to figure this out. And what I've seen 
personally and otherwise, is that the selective constitutionalism is really apparent when you force that question, right? This is why Kant says you have to think about it that way. Whatever rule that you propose, whatever imperative it is, you have to think about it becoming a universal rule. That's the only way for you to check to see whether or not you are not coming up with a rule that is simply a rule because you want to be the exception to it. There's only one way to check. And I actually think it's a wonderful and marvelous thing that in our constitution, we have that rule. It says there has to be equal protection of the laws. If we started there as an ethical matter, a constitutional cultural matter, where could that get us? If we could have that kind of conversation as opposed to these extremely selective, highly, um, highly dubious, I think, claims that are made on, on the part of most of the most privileged members of society repeatedly about how their rights are under attack when in fact, of course, that is objectively false. Could we have a better and more sophisticated conversation based around that idea? It's a lot to unpack. You know, I've been thinking, I am wedded to our Constitution, and I feel like that needs to be said, because it doesn't mean that I think it's perfect. And I've stopped saying about Donald Trump that we're in a constitutional crisis. I think there was a time that I uttered those words, I don't know, over time for months, and, um, and they become meaningless at a point. So that every crisis is judged as one that is constitutional. I think part of the reason that it feels that way now is because the legislative branch is not functioning. And so it is true when you have a legislature that isn't functioning and the president is acting outside of his authority you have no check on that, you may be in a crisis. And so, you know, and maybe it's because I come out of the legislative branch, it pains me how it, it is in such inertia that it gets in the way of us trying to at least preserve the elements and spirit of a constitution that I think does bind people, whether they know what the details are or not. And so I'd like to figure out how to fix that balance. Yeah. So that is the million-dollar question. You know, one of the major lessons of this school of political science, public choice, is that outcomes depend a lot on the institutions that aggregate preferences, right? You know, Kenneth Arrow won a Nobel Prize for this. Basically, that uh, you know, depending on how you structure the institution, that affects the outcome. It's the Dingle point again, right? Someone writes the rules of the game, and those drive the outcome. And we have uh, a system for aggregating preferences and translating that into political institutions that has given us legislative paralysis. And you know, one thing is the Constitution doesn't contemplate parties. We have one of the rare constitutions in the world. Where, you know, Madison thought, well, we don't like parties, so we'll pretend they don't exist. And the result is we had a tie between pres for president and vice president that prompted the constitutional amendment. But we still haven't dealt with the role of parties and the fact that that means that you can have a divided Congress. And in the face of legislative paralysis, who's going to fill that vacuum? Well, there are two alternatives, the presidency and the courts. And that's exactly what has happened. So how, but we, the, I, another thing that if political scientists are being honest, will say is, we're not especially good at engineering electoral institutions so we don't get this kind of outcome. Now, the good news is that um, political scientists aren't convinced that we're seeing some deep polarization in the electorate. 
that uh, means that no matter how you structure the institutions, we'll end up with paralysis again. Right? That's, that's the good news. They, they, they think that this is an institutional problem. The bad news is we don't have a lot of data on how to fix this, if I may frame this as a, a data and institutional design issue. Um, in terms of how to make the argument for changing things going forward, how to make the small c constitutional argument, uh, you know, it, it's, it's as with anything else, what we need is a narrative, uh, a narrative about what we would like to see and how it's consonant with past history and tradition, regardless of whether that dots every I and crosses every T of the Article 5 amendment process. We have always done this, right? We've always told stories about what the Constitution requires or permits or forbids. Uh, and so what is that Godfather line? Uh, you know, leave the gun, take the cannoli. So let's just take the parts that are helpful, emphasize those, and you know, sort of submerge the parts that are standing in the way of reconstructing American democracy. Just as a <clears throat> political matter, I don't think that belly aching about our institutional structures is what's going to uh, accomplish what I think everybody at this table wants accomplished. Um, the American people have to be convinced that uh, Donald Trump is bad for the country, that he doesn't represent the kind of country that we want to live in. Yes, it's going to be harder to do that because there, were there are institutional <laughs> structures that get in the way, but it's not impossible. Um, the Democrats won a, a huge victory in the House um, this year. Um, there's no reason why they can't um, build on that and and, and uh, elect a different president, a different Congress next year. But the way to do that is not by telling people whatever you think, you have to believe certain things because that's in the Constitution. Um, people uh, don't like to be told that they have to do things. The way to do it in the end is to persuade them. Um, it, it, uh, on some level, it's just fundamentally autocratic to say, I don't have to explain to you why Donald Trump is bad. Uh, I, don't, I don't have to convince you. It's just that the Constitution says he's not allowed to do this. What you have... In, in, in a well-functioning democracy, in a, in a real republic, um, things are changed because people are, are persuaded, not because they're told um, what to do by elites, especially by elite lawyers, or at least so it seems to me. A common complaint about our system is that it's unrepresentational. So we've got one party that's winning the majority in a presidential election and the other party wins the election, for example, or you've got a Senate that's organized in a way that's highly disproportional. But obviously one piece of a constitution is that it binds you to certain things that are then more difficult to change on a majority basis later. So I just wanted to know if everyone is on the same page with the idea that it ought to be a goal for the government to be representational, that that's something we can then agree on. Very quickly on constitutions, a lot of constitutions aren't entrenched. Uh, that's a, a very American understanding of what a constitution is. Uh, we can start with that as a premise, but we don't have to. They're, they're unentrenched constitutions. I think what Don is saying was really important because as much as we have this urgent dumpster fire that we're trying to address, which is this president, even if this president were not here, the problem that Donna was describing would remain. And that's not a problem of democracy in, in 
capital letters. It's a problem of Congress. I mean, I think it is the case, as David was describing, it is the case that this institution has become dysfunctional. And the consequences of its dysfunction is that people race either to the courts, which is what we did in the 1970s and 1960s to solve the problems that legislature couldn't take, or to the president, where both, both parties celebrate the imperial president so long as their president is uh, the president is from their party and both of these reactions are pathological in a representative democracy and the challenge i think is how to focus attention in exactly the way that donna was dr driving us to what fixes could get us a democracy a congress that actually gave people a sense that they could grapple with problems and solve them Across the globe, there are parliaments that actually are able to address problems and solve them. Not perfectly. There's no perfect place. And we could have the fundamental argument about whether we should be Singapore or China versus a democracy. But assuming we're in the space of democracy, it's, it's conceivable to have a representative um, Congress. And it should be part of ours, because if we don't have that, then we spin either to the authoritarianism of a president or the judicial uh, judicial r rule that um, you know I think nobody has any real faith in I think also that you know not only our constitutions going back to the premise of the question it's it's hard for people to find a way forward in debate when it seems like everything is a variable there are no fixed constants but you know not only is it not the case that constitutions aren't all entrenched but we have to disconnect constitutional from democracy you know there's nothing about democracy that requires constitutions. So I think we can, I feel like there's consensus in the room for democracy, although that's, uh, that's a problem in that democracy can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. Uh, but some sense that government should reflect the will of the people for whom the government's created. But we don't actually necessarily need a constitution to do that. But let me go back to something, David, that you were saying before we officially started uh, when you were you were talking about how one of the things that you have been seeing in your conversations with people around the world is that the not only is the lore of the U.S. Constitution as model diminishing, diminished substantially in the last few decades, but that the lore of democracy itself has diminished substantially and and that makes me wonder, uh, you know, Larry, you said, well, people are, if you put a, a thousand randomly selected people in a room together and had them debate first principles, um, you know, in some Kantian or Rawlsian sense, maybe they'd come up with democracy. But it's not clear to me, I mean, given, it's not clear to me that if you put a thousand people in, in a room and they were a thousand Americans today, that you wouldn't get some significant, those with power quite a lot of them might say, you know what, I'm not committed to democracy if it means that my power diminish, diminishes. I'm committed to doing whatever it takes to preserving my position in this system because, sorry, you know, you're left out, you're left out, you're left out. I feel bad, but I've got to put my family, my tribe, my region, my party, whatever it may be, first. I, I, so, so I think we may be committed to democracy. It's not clear to me, however, that... It's not entirely clear to me that even a majority of our fellow Americans are. I'll make it worse. It's not uh, elites have the most reason, as you pointed out, 
to be skeptical of democracy, but there was a recent piece in the Journal of Democracy, I think from last year, uh, 24% of young Americans in a recent poll described democracy as a, quote, bad or very bad way of running the country. The proportion of Americans expressing support for, quote, army rule has risen over the last two decades from one in 16 to one in six. So we cannot take for granted support for democracy, even among, you know, there's this narrative which is appealing that, oh, you know, if we just get out of the way of the young generation, they're progressive, you know, they want to they run things, and, and, you know, the old guard is standing in their way. Their, you know, support for democracy among young Americans is wobbly. And if it's wobbly among young Americans, imagine other generations, other places. We also have to think, though, back to the point that you had gestured at before, which is that it really depends on what we think they mean by democracy. I mean, if what they think democracy means is the way they status quo U.S., then, of course, they're they're disenchanted with that because they should be. And we frankly don't know what a democracy would look like because we've never had one. So if we're going to start from this principle of, you know, if, if democracy means something like the majority rule, okay, well then, yeah, I'd be very concerned about what would happen with a thousand people um, in a room. And I don't even think they would feel bad, right? It wouldn't be this, oh, I'm sorry, you're excluded. No, they would not be sorry that you're excluded. 2017, Charlottesville, what were the, there's a reason why they're chanting what they're chanting. You've got white men with tiki torches, you know, marching through Charlottesville saying, you will not replace us. What are they saying, right? They're saying democracy, the Constitution, whatever we wrap up in all these things, it's us. It's for us. And you, all of you who are not those people, should not be replacing us. That is where we are as a country. White male supremacy is where we have always been as a country. And where we have gotten in the last few years, and and this is a larger thing we can talk about with Obama's presidency, is you had this upswell of people saying this is out of our hands now because we now see somebody who's not supposed to be president. And even worse, could be followed by someone else who's not supposed to be president, and then you get what we got. And we have to confront the fact that that is something deeper than just this debate over what the Constitution is or what democracy is. Because, again, if the Constitution meant, if it meant when people invoked it, they meant equal protection, it would mean something very different than what it actually means when people say this. And and back to Mike's points that he's made about how it's... It impoverishes our conversations about so many things. When people don't have to explain themselves, they don't have to persuade anybody, they don't have to tell you, and I'll go back to the Second Amendment thing, don't even talk about what's good policy or whether there's a bunch of dead kids. You will actually get people who will stand up and say, dead kids are the cost of the Second Amendment. That's just how it is. But you get liberals saying the same thing about the First Amendment all the time. It's just the cost of the Constitution. We have to do it this way. That, I think, should really be one of our targets. That constitutional reverence is a target, should be a target, because as long as we're in this worshipful stance towards something, that means whatever people say it means, right? This is, it makes me think of that, what, that mirror in Harry Potter. You look inside and whatever you desire you know, comes out, that's what people do with the Constitution. Then we have to stop letting people do that. It has to stop being something they're allowed to resort to as a way of not giving good reasons, not actually persuading uh, the public. I think, first of all, I mean, at a, at a constitutional cultural level, you just don't let people do it, right? The next time someone on Twitter says, you blocked me, you violated my First Amendment rights, that needs to be roundly mocked, right? We need to get to a place where we're not having conversations where everything's in a constitutional register and every ridiculous off-the-wall argument somehow takes on some kind of legitimacy because you say First Amendment or because you say Second Amendment. So I think that it has to start on the cultural level, as most things do, and that um, unfortunately is tied back into constitutional literacy, to the fact that people need to know what they're talking about before they invoke it. But it really has to be part of this process of not just thinking, I'll get what I get, right? The moment that I, well, there's been so many moments, I shouldn't say this, but the mom, one of the moments that I was most afraid for this country was a moment when Donald Trump was asked as a candidate, will you respect the results of this election? He says, I'll respect them if I win. 
And I just thought if that wasn't the moment where everything should have changed or everybody should have seen exactly what we were talking about. This is someone who just came out and said it. It's not even embedded anymore. It's not something implicit. It's I will literally only play this game, play by these rules, whatever it is, constitution, law, whatever we want to call it, if I win. And it's as naked an expression of that as possible. And at least some members, many members of our country, our democracy said, that's what I want. You know, gorilla in the room, uh, to follow up on what Marianne's saying about the the, the uh, problem with people sometimes want really terrible things. And so when we put the, together the words constitutional democracy, there's a bit of a contradiction there. Again, going back to, you know, we don't have to look at contemporary America. We can go back to World War II, which started the impetus toward the adoption of constitutions. Popular majorities can do really, really awful things, right? The Nazi government had widespread popular support. And again, one reaction to that is we have to take certain things off the table. And now we blithely go along and pretend that constitutional and democracy go together naturally. But the reality is the constitutions are meant to take certain things off the table. Now, there are ways of try to argue around that to say, well, there was some moment at the founding where we, you know, at a moment of higher, higher thinking or, or, you know, a transcendent moment, we agreed on principles and we committed ourselves to that. So really it's democratic. But again, that's also open democratic objections. Well, that was generations ago. That was centuries ago. And so we do, there is this contradiction between constitutional and democracy, which we generally don't confront. And as a result, we find ourselves running in circles. Marianne, I agreed with so much of what you said, um, especially about the detrimental effect on political discussion that invo invocation of the Constitution produces. And then you got to the very end, and I began to wonder. Um, so you said that the moment at which you were most afraid for the country was when Donald Trump, Trump was asked, would he respect the results of the election? And he said, only if I win. Um, and, and yes, that does raise very basic questions, but but here's what really troubles me. I don't respect the results of those of the election because Donald Trump won, <laughs> right? Um, so for me, um, an, a, an election, even if, even if all of Larry's stuff was put in place and it was completely democratic, an election where um, 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 a... a, a uh, to, to put it bluntly, a, a, a racist um, xenophobe uh, gets elected. That, to me, is just not a legitimate outcome. Uh, it's just not legitimate. Uh, he's not a legitimate president, uh, no matter how many votes he got, because he doesn't represent what a country that I want to be a part of. So to me, what that suggests, and this gets back to the the issue that Rosa raised about secession. If we're going to have a functioning republic, there does have to be some overlap of kind of basic ideas about what's, what kind of a country we want to have. If, if, if it gets too divided, um, democracy's not going to put it together, the Constitution's not going to put it together. Um, you just cannot have absent just a really authoritarian system. You cannot have a country hold together if there's too big a gap in terms of, of people's conceptions of, of, of what kind of country they want to live in. 
what unnerves me about Trump saying this is not, I think there's a sense in which we can say we don't respect the legitimacy of a certain election, but when the person who has who is arguably going to be in power says this, it has a different valence. When someone comes out and says, I am power speaking to law and I say law doesn't matter. I think that that is a different kind of moment for our country for people to support that and to think that that was justified. But but to your other points about the the you know who we are as a country and what that means, I, I would have even thought 10 years ago that there would have been better answers for this than we've got now. And I just honestly don't know what we have now in terms of those answers. And there doesn't seem to be any way for us to tell the story. In fact, I, it's, in some sense, this whole conversation feels... Um, it feels way too soon because we've never reckoned with any of this. This is a moment that we haven't had to see. This is how we got here. If we ask ourselves, how do we get out of it? Part of it is a presuming that we know how we got here. And I don't think we've actually fully told the story that our fetishization of the Constitution is what got us here. And there is no way for us to go anywhere forward until we confront that head on, whatever that might mean. And that can mean multiple things. But we can't keep pretending as though our choices, right, Democratic and Republican and everything else over the last two centuries has not brought us exactly to this point and take some real reckoning of what that actually means. Can I respond to, to, to Mike? I mean, this is a response, not a disagreement. This is definitely just a response. Um, this is a crucial question. Can any political or national system survive in the face of deep disagreement and diversity, right? The United States is uh, and I like this about the country, and I think most of us at this table do, but it's a deeply diverse place. And, you know, in the constitutional literature, there's this problematization of certain problems. The problem is constitution-making for divided societies, right? You have, like, Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is deeply, deeply, deeply divided. We are getting to the point where we're just a milder version of that, and constitutional design for the United States should be approached as a, a question of design for a society that is deeply divided along racial, religious, whatever lines. We are getting to that point. There are some, you know, broad solutions for this kind of problem. One we already have, which is federalism, right? Don't force Alabama and Hawaii to have the same laws. We allow that to a significant extent. That's one of the rote recommendations of literature. But at the end of the day, something we have to understand about constitutions is they are not a miracle cure, right? Let's take two examples. I, I like these. Norway and Sudan. Right? I defy you to write the world's worst constitution for Norway. The country will be fine. You could take, you mean you could just write gobbledygook on paper. You know, it's a small, homogenous, wealthy country with, you know, shared ideals. They'd be fine. Now write the world's best constitution for Sudan, and they're still hosed. You know, that's a deeply divided society. It's so badly fractured. So we, I think, are the kind of country for which a constitution does make sense. This goes back to the question of whether, when, and why a constitution. They're kind of like weak medicine. Right. Like if you're sick, get some sleep. Right. You know, drink plenty of fluids. You know, don't exert yourself. Maybe take some aspirin. Constitutions are kind of like that. If you're really, really healthy, it doesn't matter. If you're really, really sick, it doesn't matter. We are in that purgatory area where constitutions, I think, are helpful, but still not essential. So I'm, I'm still hung up on this, though. I mean, is it is it is it harmless? Um, in given the divisions, given given as Mary Marianne puts it, the damaging impact of a couple of centuries of fetishizing the Constitution, is is the Constitution the equivalent of you know probably won't hurt, might help, um, or is it the equivalent of saying? you know, yeah, I know you've got cancer and you probably ought to go get these real treatments, but let's just, you know, have a constitution instead, right? I mean, I, I, and I, so, you know, does the ethical 
what does the ethical person do when somebody says, well, gee, is, is Trump violating the Constitution? Do you engage on that level when you know that engaging on that level involves legitimizing something that maybe we don't want to legitimize or we only want to legitimize parts of it we'll take the equal protection clause but we don't want the rest or whatever you know or or is that the only level we've got you know is it just that well yeah you know there are all these other more interesting more important questions but this is just the language that we happen to speak in this country and therefore you need to speak it if you want to get anywhere as a moral matter we ought not to engage in that level because i think it's for some of the reasons Mary Ann's mentioned, it's really destructive of authentic political dialogue. So, so let me just take an example, and that shows, I think, how things, how quickly things degenerate. So, one of the most interesting proposals that's come out of uh, the campaign so far has been um, Elizabeth Warren's proposal for a wealth tax. And you know, I'm myself undecided about that. I think there are some good aspects to it. There are also some obvious problems. So it's this is a legitimate public policy debate about whether um, we ought to have a wealth tax. But now, all of a sudden, um, uh, Jonathan Turley, a, a con law professor, comes along and he says, oh, wait a second. We don't have to talk about whether this is good or bad. It's unconstitutional. Okay. So now, um, um, when Turley says that, in a country that fetishizes the Constitution, how is someone supposed to respond? So um, one thing I could say um, um, is, well, I'm against, I'm for a wealth tax, and I don't care if it's constitutional or not. But because of the fetishization of the Constitution, that is a way of saying I'm not a real American. Right, because to be a real American, you have to believe in the Constitution. So, um, if you can't say that, um, what do you have to say? You have to say, no, actually, I think it is constitutional. Um, and what happens then? Well, the first thing that happens is um, people start making very tendentious arguments because. Um, you know, if I'm for the wealth tax and I have to say it's constitutional, that means I have to say that the wealth tax is not a direct tax, and who knows whether it's a direct tax or not. So all of a sudden, I'm engaged in this deeply uh, dishonest effort to mold the data to support um, an argument which, which I might actually believe, might actually not believe. Secondly, we go down um, a rabbit hole um, where instead of talking about how a wealth tax would be administered and whether it would add to the, the GDP or even whether it's an ethical imperative, we end up talking about what exactly um, the, the framers meant by a direct tax. Did, did James Madison change his mind about this? Was Alexander Hamilton's statements in the Federalist Papers uh, uh, correct? This is... Um, deeply, deeply irrelevant to anything we should care about. So it takes us um, away from the subject we ought to be talking about. And then maybe the most detrimental thing is that in a society that is deeply divided, as, um, as we've been talking about, it raises the temperature of the argument. Because, you know, 
you and I can have a perfectly civil argument about whether a wealth tax is going to raise or lower the GDP. But if we're talking about whether a wealth tax is contrary to the fundamental principles on which the country is founded, now all of a sudden people start yelling, yelling at each other instead of talking to each other. So no, I don't think this is uh, a neutral enterprise. I think it really hurts the kind of dialogue that we ought to be having in a mature republic. Mike, is, is it a way out of the dilemma? Um, so I, I agree, I think everyone at the table agrees that whether we like it or not, we're kind of stuck with the Constitution, the document is a touchstone for legitimate political argument in this country, right? Okay, so so then can we get to this argument, revisiting the question of what do we mean by Constitution, by understanding what the Constitution is at, at a not as a poem, but at an even higher level of abstraction, right? I like poem, like poem works for me, but so I'm in the position, unlike Americans who were born in this country, um, I chose very consciously. And I was coming from Canada. I wasn't fleeing civil war or famine or anything. I wasn't fleeing diddly squat. I'm from Vancouver, right? So the question is, you know, who, as I'm often asked even by Americans, why in your right mind did you move here and do you regret it? Um, I've had my moments, but I, more of them recently in the last couple of years, I have to say, but what I had no trouble signing on to uh, as someone who had had the luxury of you know, law school and PhD program and a lot of time to think about this, why is it a good thing to be an American? And when I take that pledge to uphold the Constitution, what, how do I understand that pledge? For me, it really goes back to this enlightenment ideal of self-determination. I am not pledging allegiance to the three-fifths clause or two senators for every state or the text of that document. I am pledging my allegiance. I fully buy into this idea that we have the power, the right, and the obligation to chart our path in a document in this way uh, and that we are committed to government through law. I'm okay with that. The Constitution understood at that level of abstraction, great. It's when we get into the Second Amendment's prefatory clause doesn't mean anything and so states can't prohibit people from carrying handguns. I, I have a problem with that. But if we agree at that level, and I don't see any reason why we couldn't, I, I'm constantly brought back to like the practical question of now. What do we do now to move us towards a democracy that could begin to uh, be function again, could begin to have a Congress that could function again? Like, What are the practical steps for fixing the structural flaws that make it so we don't have anything like a representative democracy? What you do is you organize. <laughs> to do what? To put the right people in power. No, There's the right just, people. That's the, that the rules work. Yes. And, and yes, the rules are, you know, it, 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 a problem. She was the right person in power. You no, know, but, <laughs> but fix it. look, um, a problem for people on um, the left is it's always an uphill struggle. It's always going to be hard. It's never going to be fully successful. But there is not a way around, I think, political organization and persuasion. I don't disagree with that, but my question was, for what? What is the thing we're trying for, to change? And, and so for me, um, what, what's at stake in the end is not some form of government, not formal mechanisms by which people are chosen or anything like that. It, it's having a just and decent society where uh, people have enough to eat and, and have a job and have meaning for their lives. Um, that's what we need to organize for, and, and we need to do the hard work of convincing 
other people that that is in their interests and that's what they should vote for. But it's a but it is the government that is the mechanism that enables those things to happen. You can't and so organize. we need to change the people in the government. You're not going to do that through a constitutional convention. You're not going to do it through invoking the Fourteenth Amendment. You're going to do it through the hard work of organizing. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 